Hey folks, Jeff Salzman here, and welcome to The Daily Evolver. This week, I'm going to share an interview I did a few days ago with Steve McIntosh. And Steve is one of our leading integral philosophers. He's written three terrific books on integral thinking, including his latest, The Presence of the Infinite. And Steve is also the founder of the Institute for Cultural Evolution, which is a think tank dedicated to the purpose of helping cultures evolve higher level solutions to our gnarliest social problems. Which brings us, of course, around again to Donald Trump. <laughs> well, actually, yes, we are going to be speaking of Donald Trump. Uh, Steve has turned his considerable integral capacity and sensibilities uh, to trying, as many of us are, to make sense of this new reality that we're in with Donald Trump as president. And um, like many of us, Steve has come to the conclusion that at least part of the way forward is for there to be a more full-on integration of people with traditionalist or what we call amber level value systems. To that end, he has published a paper called Appreciating the Upside of Nationalism, which I recommend to all integral sympathizers. It's posted on the Institute for Cultural Evolution's website, uh, which is culturalevolution.org. Full disclosure, Steve and I are good friends. We're across the street neighbors, and I'm on the board of the Institute, and we talk about this stuff all the time. But I invited Steve over to record a more formal interview because I really think he does help us sort out how to create a more truly inclusive American family. And of course, it's all relevant for any culture that is seeking to integrate people with traditional values, modern values, and postmodern values. So, that's why we call it integral. <laughs> All right, folks, thanks for listening. And here we have Steve McIntosh. First of all, it's great to be back with you, Jeff. It's always a pleasure uh, to be here and talk about these things with you. Um, so, the thesis of the paper is that a big factor in our current political situation with the election of Trump is a reassertion of nationalism, right? There are many factors that led to Trump. It's a complex analysis, can't be reduced to simply a cause and effect. But I think a principle of integral politics is to try to appreciate the good side of the forces that we oppose. So I'm a globalist. I certainly opposed Trump and am you know, chagrined and shocked by some of the things that he said. Uh, and it's a shame in a sense that we, at least for me, I'm focusing on what he does rather than what he says. And it's a tragedy that the word of the American president has been degraded so badly. But if you just focus on the actions and not the words, the reality distortion field and the craziness is, is not as bad. Uh, so looking at the situation and saying, regardless of, of Trump, there's a, a, a 64 million people, just about, who voted for Trump, right? And if we agree that democracy is a more moral form of political organization than non-democratic alternatives, then there's, uh, I'd say, a moral duty to affirm that this, these principles of representative government mean that a certain portion of the elect electorate 
has wisdom. In other words, both sides have wisdom. Now, I think that the election of Trump will prove to be a mistake, and certainly the American electorate has been mistaken uh, many times before. But roughly half of America can't be entirely wrong, right? You know, that everybody has a piece of the truth. And, and so the piece of the truth, the, the good part that we could try to look for in, uh, not in necessarily Trump, but in his voters, is this reaffirmation of the value of not just economic nationalism, but cultural nationalism. And both economic nationalism and cultural nationalism have some downsides, some shadow, and we certainly need to be aware of those and not be apologists for those. But as a globalist and as an integralist, I recognize that nationalism and globalism form an interdependent polarity, right? So if we're going to talk about nationalism, we're isolating this element of the, the larger currents of history and culture that have led to our current political situation. So examining nationalism, globalism, affirming that it is an interdependent polarity and bringing the principles of, of polarity uh, you know, practice to bear upon the situation can, I think, make us more effective uh, political activists. It can make our resistance to Trumpism stronger, um, and it can help bring forward uh, the elements of nationalism that have been suppressed and, and that have partially responsible for the reg regression that we've experienced. Okay, so Steve has identified this enduring polarity between nationalism and globalism, which is really the contemporary version of an enduring polarity that probably goes back to tribal societies who also had to manage these two opposing impulses of isolationism and engagement and how to both compete and cooperate with their tribal neighbors. So I asked Steve to unpack this polarity in the context of the structure of cultural evolution and the stages of cultural evolution. Um, it's, it's important to review. I think most of your uh, listeners are familiar with the construct of traditionalism, modernism, and postmodernism, the three major worldviews that uh, sort of vie for power in America's political system. I mean, there's some pre-traditional uh, segments. There's some post-postmodern segments that we're uh, trying to participate in the emergence of. But basically, we're looking at um, traditionalism, modernism, and postmodernism. And, and, and modernism itself, as a worldview, as a cultural agreement structure, is largely divided by a polarity within itself between you know, fiscal conservatives and uh, libertarians on the right side and, and sort of modernist Democrats, liberals on the other side. But I think it's important to say that in, in our work at the Institute for Cultural Evolution to develop integral politics and, and take it further is that we're we're looking in this in a way that's a little bit more subtle and hopefully more uh, sophisticated than your standard spiral dynamics analysis, which tends to focus on psychology more than culture. Um, the way we're coming to see these structures is more as cultural structures than psychological structures, although they certainly exist at both levels, right, in the individual and the collective. But these moral systems, like traditionalism and postmodernism, they cohere as structures, as, as systemic evolutionary holons, if you will, um, because they have a value metabolism. In other words, there's a, there's a cultural reality to what it means to be postmodern and to have postmodern values and to, and to feel a sense of community, political solidarity with other postmodernists. And this systemic structure made out of agreements 
uh, in a sense, interpenetrates into our minds. You know, it does our some of our thinking for us. And although integralists especially can make meaning from different structures, it's important to see these, these cultural structures not merely as psychological, but as historical. So right now we have a variety of different levels of, of polarity, right? So, so the natural pattern of evolution, the dialectical pattern of thesis, antithesis, and synthesis results in polarities as sort of the natural condition of development, right? Something new emerges, it creates a polarity. And these polarities are uh, self-similarly distributed within these cultural structures at across the levels and within the levels. So in order to understand the polarity of, of globalism and nationalism, it's important to see it in the context of the other polar systems, the other magnetic centers that are influencing it. Right? So we have one polarity that exists between the traditional worldview and the modernist worldview. That's an ancient historical polarity. And one of the ways that, that, that when modernity emerged during the early Enlightenment, one of the foundations of nationalism was the Treaty of Westphalia, right, 1653, that established the principle of international relations among sovereign nations. And that's been the foundation of this kind of international nation-state global order ever since. Um, and while that polarity between traditionalism and, and modernity continues in many ways, we now have the emergence of post-modernity or postmodernism, often referred to in integral parlance as green, the gr green consciousness, the green worldview. And that creates a, a different kind of polarity, right, between um, modernity and, and what comes after modernity, that is post-modernity, right? Okay, so Jeff here again, and it occurs to me that this may be a good time to offer those of you who are really wanting to follow along and learn this system of cultural evolution, these stages of development, that there's a chart on my website, dailyevolver.com, where if you go to the website and scroll down just a bit, you'll see a section called About Integral Theory. And you can click on that. And the first thing you'll see are a couple charts one of which is the levels of development, and that really will help you to follow along and learn this if you are so inclined. Okay, back to Steve. So we have these, these competing moral systems, right? Traditionalism and, and postmodernism are more community-oriented forms of culture. They, they um, gather allegiance more. They kind of create peer pressure in a stronger way, and they tend to pull your people, they feel themselves either pulled toward green morality or traditional morality. Modernity has its own morality, but it's very individualistic as keeping with its you know, place in the dialectical emergence. And modernity's key morality involves um, uh, liberty and, and a sphere of, of sovereignty for the individual, right? That's what all the elements of the Bill of Rights are. Right, including uh, freedom of press, freedom of conscience, freedom of speech, privacy, economic freedom, private property. All those elements are what modernity carved out as its own moral system, but it ultimately borrowed the moral capital of traditionalism to make that happen. Right, So we see a huge foundation of, of nationalism as the primary political structure of modernity is resting on the previous accomplishments of the traditional moral system. And that's why nationalism is often associated with traditional morality, even though it, it, in some ways it, it is an improvement on it because it carves out this sphere of individual autonomy, which is foundational to all further development. Now, the green moral system, 
right, is uh, it, it, uh, its important job is to develop beyond modernity, to not take modernity, modernity and traditionalism as a sort of the foundations of Western civilization in the developing world. It rejects that. And in, 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 that's a healthy thing. In other words, evolution can't stand still. We can't maintain the post-World War II liberal order indefinitely. We, we want something better, right? And so green is the first step of antithesis that goes beyond that civilizational synthesis and rejects, uh, uh, it, it instinctively goes for the vitals. You know, it attacks the, the key moral features of the other two systems in its attempt to break free. Right, so one of those moral systems, of course, is is patriotism and nationalism. Another is economic freedom and you know capitalism. You know the vital uh, forces within those previous worldviews. Now, there's been a critique of Green that says that it's failed to lead, but I respectfully disagree with that and feel as though Green is doing exactly what it should do. It's disrupting. It's creating antithesis. It's disintegrating, and that creates you know the, the shadow of modernity. Uh, the shadow of traditionalism creates the opportunity for modernity's emergence. Likewise, modernity's shortcomings create uh, a path open for where uh, postmodernism can go. And postmodernism's shortcomings, its failure to appreciate how all of these values are linked together, that, they're, that, that, when, that to make them sustainable, they must be in an evolutionary structure, a transcendent and inclusive system. Right? So evolution at every level, it grows from within itself. It builds on what came before, right? Cells build on molecules, right? Bodies build on cells. And in the same, the same principle holds for culture. The accomplishments of the traditional moral system are foundational. The achievements of modernity are foundational. And indeed, postmodernism's important values of, of a world-centric morality, right? That, that in a sense are a, a perfect antithesis to nationalism. Uh, you know, this sort of embracing the globe. Breaking out of nationalism, rejecting um, uh, uh, political realism and the self-interests of nation states, which still have the wound of colonialism attached to them, is a very important move in history, right? But if, if, if it is allowed to go too far, if, if this disintegrating force, this liberating force is, is uh, allowed to, in a sense, disrupt completely the ecosystem and, and attack the vitals of these previous foundational moral systems, then um, there's going to be huge regression. And we're seeing the beginning of that with uh, Donald Trump. That is, the, the um, refutation of the principles of nationalism, the equating of nationalism with racism, the equating of nationalism with xenophobia or nativism. Um, these are strains which are clearly within uh, the discourse of postmodernity, right? They, they understandably, predictably, even perhaps forgivably, they understand that uh, they see nationalism for its downside. And this is where this ex extremely important technique of evolutionary thinking and seeing uh, called polarity uh, practice or, or working with interdependent polarities comes into play. Because the, the way values develop, the way these value structures, which are essentially what these worldview cultural systems are, these value structures, each one has a, a set of positive values that are uh, foundational and enduring that we need in, in to be permanent features of the cultural ecosystem, and shadow sides or, or, or pathologies that we need to reject. Okay, Jeff here again. And that is an important point that I want to underscore, that every stage of development, traditional, modern, and postmodern, and indeed pre-traditional, and 
post-postmodern, which we refer to as integral, all have both positive and shadow sides of their worldview. Now, one of the positive aspects of the integral view, in fact, maybe the main one, is that we're able to see that. And we're able to go back and see what part of each of these previous structures is healthy and can be included in a new integration and what parts need to be left behind. And inevitably, the part that needs to be left behind is the part that is limited in view. The part that doesn't just say that America is precious, but that says that America is better and other cultures are inferior. And by the way, this is a belief of all cultures at the traditional stage of development, that they are, in one way or the other, the chosen people. And if you can get beyond that and see what actually is of value here, then that is the integral project. So I asked Steve to expound on this a bit. Yeah, yeah, sure. So, so traditionalism has the upsides of, of uh, honesty, decency, respect for rightful authority. It has the downsides of, of xenophobia and um, potential racism and, and uh, authoritarianism. I mean, the, the downsides of traditionalism are certainly evident. And one of the, the, the natural mistakes that people who are unaware of these developmental features of, of evolution and value often mistake is that they look at a, a interdependent polarity and they see the downsides only. They don't see the upsides. They see the shadow because that's what's threatening. Right? That's what is the negative that their values are animated to try to correct. And indeed, that's a, a very important job that Green is doing is it's promoting world-centric morality and questioning uh, nationalistic morality. But because globalism and nationalism are, the, the upsides of them are indeed interdependent, right? Globalism, healthy globalism, at least at this time in history, depends on viable nation states, Nation states depend on a degree of social solidarity. Uh, Jefferson clearly recognized this, that democracy depends on a degree of what he called civic virtue. And civic virtue requires that you have some sympathy for the other side. Even if you resist them, it's a, an inclusive resistance, ideally, right? That's what civic virtue within a democracy involves, is recognizing that even though you may be bitterly opposed to a political faction, there's this container of nationalism, which says, okay, well, we're all Americans, we all care about America in our own way, that is a countervailing force that would otherwise cause people to go to war. So this situation that we're in now is that because nationalism has been uh, repudiated in many ways, both in action and in words, by the world-centric morality of, of postmodernism, and because that's, in a sense, the, the tra traditional morality and postmodern morality are, are stronger, in a sense, because they're collective than the individual morality of modernity, right? So there's this magnetic field. So liberals, who are otherwise modernists, find themselves pulled toward the, the powerful moral collective values of post-modernity, right? So even though at the, at the Democratic National Convention, as you and I have discussed, right, they knew that nationalism was lacking and they went overboard in a way to try to make it as rah-rah American as possible, right? They had the general, they had the balloons, they had all the things that tried to say, look, this is America, we're Americans, let's affirm that the Democratic Party is, is, loves America and is a nationalistic party. And I think they were authentic about that, but they haven't really confronted or dealt with or otherwise integrated um, the repudiation of that notion, which is the very soul of postmodernity, 
right? And because they're conflicted about that, they want it both ways, right? They want the postmodern voter, but they just don't want to have Bernie Sanders as their candidate. And, um, you know, while that may have persuaded some people, the people who felt in their bones, the folk wisdom of the 64 million people who voted for Trump, that their sense was that's not good enough. That's just window dressing. You know, you really don't affirm nationalism. And to the extent that you don't, that's going to empower us to take back the presidency to reaffirm nationalism, right? So in this developmental system, if we if we fail to carry forward the foundational upsides that are part of this ecosystem, that are, that are foundational elements that make it work in terms of values and identity and culture, yeah, if we don't carry forward the good side of nationalism, then that's going to empower the downsides of nationalism to pull the body politic back um, to, to reaffirm nationalism. And until we, as progressive globalists, learn how to better integrate the values of nationalism into our discourse and into our sort of being in the political world, then we're going to be empowering these regressive forces to keep pulling us back until we find a way to carry it forward. Okay, Jeff, back here again. And I want to repeat something that Steve just said because I think it's really important. And that is, he said, until we, as progressive globalists, learn how to better integrate the values of nationalism into our discourse, until we're able to do that, then we're going to be empowering those regressive forces who keep pulling us back. So then that begs the question of how do we tease apart this positive nationalism from the regressive stuff? And I think as development happens. I think of my own development. You know, I was a patriotic little kid. I was a Boy Scout. I did the Pledge of Allegiance and loved God bless America. Got choked up at the Memorial Day ceremony in our little town when they played taps at the cemetery. And actually, it's funny, in thinking of this, one of my earliest memories of being lit up by music was in one of these ceremonies a young girl, and I'm guessing now she might have been 18 or 20, sang My Buddy. And for those of you who don't know this, a beautiful song. Uh, it is about a young girl pining for her soldier lover. And I remember, it was a moment of transformation for me. I was maybe six, seven years old, and I was bodily, cellularly thrilled in a way that Still, I can go back and listen to Barbara Streisand's version of that song, which I would recommend, and have a little soldier boy heartbreak all over again. But by and large, as I grew older, those rituals and patriotism and the flag and all of that meant less to me. I was less drawn to all of that. And then by the time I got into the green postmodern meme as a good, bolder liberal, it all became kind of embarrassing. And to the degree that these displays were militaristic, they made me nervous. So, you know, welcome to the green meme. It's so funny how these, you know, constellations of emotions unfold, you know, right on schedule as one develops. So what we're dealing with, for a lot of us who are still, you know, waist to neck deep in green, <laughs> is how do we sort this out, this positive nationalism from regressive nationalism? So I threw that to Steve, and 
So here's Steve. I think many people who are in the integral world are, are naturally progressive, right? We all kind of, in a sense, come from progressive culture. And if we hadn't embodied or been progressive in some important ways, we couldn't be thoroughly integral. So that naturally means that we're persuaded by the rhetoric of uh, postmodern politics, which claims that uh, Trump's election is due to a resurgence of white white nationalism, right? And so white nationalism means racism. It means xenophobia. It means the illegitimate assertion of race um, in the form of nationalism. So it's racism masquerading as nationalism, right? And th that's certainly partially true, right? But again, the duty, if, if, if we're going to create political evolution and ensure that Trumpism does not continue to prevail, that we can overcome this setback, uh, that means that we we have a duty as progressives. In other words, we have a greater responsibility to appreciate how we still need nationalism and how not all nationalism is racism. That is, one of the basic political features of any polity is for the group to legitimately decide who they're going to let in, how many they're going to let in, you know, when they're going to let them in. All of these, that, that's, if, if politics means anything, it means the electorate's ability to control what the electorate is. Right now, both my parents were immigrants. I'm pro-immigrant. I think we should have a, a completely welcoming, compassionate immigration policy. Um, so I'm, you know, I oppose Trump's immigration plans. But I think there is a way for globalists who have compassion for the refugees of the world and want to see uh, greater global integration. I think there's ways we can affirm healthy nationalism, and indeed, um, once we we really appreciate and begin to both live out in our political opinions and affirm in our political rhetoric that nationalism is interdependent with globalism. And these two are, are just like, it, you know, cells, uh, your, our bodies dependent upon the health of our cells and our globalism as a principle and globalization as an economic trend both require, at least as long as we're alive, these healthy nation-state structures. And these nation-state structures in turn require that nationalism not be completely repudiated or associated strictly with racism. Because the more we do that, the more we're going to make the xenophobes empowered, and the more that the um, the negative elements of the traditional worldview will become attractive and it will increase its gravity. Yeah. Um, Jeff, back here again. It seems like uh, what we have offered to us in this sort of pre-integral world, this first-tier world that we live in, is either the story of America's greatness or the story of America's corruption. That's the traditional story and the postmodern story. And that uh, knitting them together is what's called for. And um, so I asked Steve about that. So um, looking for the good in um, what, what it means to be American, I, I think that that certainly involves affirming that uh, our history has both dignities and disasters, right? And so again, the focus of postmodern dialogue on history is to condemn American history as something akin to a criminal enterprise. Certainly, uh, slavery, right, the ethnic cleansing of the Native Americans, foreign policy shenanigans, there are, uh, American history is littered with uh, bad deeds and shameful occurrences that is going to take us uh, generations to atone for. And that process has begun. And that's indeed one of the important moral crusades of postmodernism is to cause us to live up 
to those crimes and to try to atone for or otherwise overcome, you know, make up for the wrongs that we've committed in the past. But because that is so strong and so morally um, uh, affirming for people, you know, it gives them identity and provides solidarity to their group because they're opposed to these, these historical crimes, there's this gravity that pulls you into one side, right? And if you're a postmodernist or one of these other worldviews, in a sense, that's perhaps the best you can do. But as integralists, I think we have a greater responsibility to appreciate that the currents that pull us into one sideism, right, that pull us into one pole versus the other, are something that is we're gaining the capacity through vision logic, right, through dialectical seeing, to be able to rise above that and to say, okay, there's a traditional side of this too, right? America has achieved many things in the world. It's been a beacon of hope of democracy in the world. It's it's uh, come to the rescue of people in the world uh, throughout history in uh, and done amazing goods, right? So America is also something to be proud of and something to cherish and something to defend and and uh, have loyalty to. So. It seems as though these two, patriotic loyalty on the one hand and uh, world-centric, uh, you know, suspicion and, and, and rejection and, and uh, anger about these crimes that are indeed ongoing, right? The legacy of colonialism continues and it's something we continue to have to fight. It seems like an either-or choice. But with this dialectical way of seeing, we can begin to have both without just trying to have a, a middling compromise between the two. Right, that that's the a key difference that I talk about in uh, the presence of the infinite, my 2015 book, is as a a practice, we want to avoid always choosing uh, one side versus the other, and we also want to avoid what's called a compromise fallacy of simply saying that we have to split the difference or that it's both true and it's just relative. I think we can see that postmodernism is in in some in very important ways more evolved than either traditionalism or modernity. But it's not evolved enough to provide the larger leadership that we need in this time in history that needs to integrate these two uh, these polarities, both uh, traditionalism and postmodernism, America's crimes and its historical achievements, and indeed nationalism and globalism. And so that involves, as progressives, getting over our, our reflexive distaste or suspicion or rejection of traditional patriotism. Right. And, and this polarity uh, theory, polarity practice provides systemic instructions for how to do that, how to actually look at these values to see both their shadows that are propelling further development and their uh, positive historical achievements that are uh, like bricks in the wall, right? That, that, that post-modernity and all of its world-centric morality is, is unsustainable if it's not based on this evolutionary sequence of, of, uh, of group loyalty that we find in traditionalism, of, of national loyalty in the context of, of a beginning world-centric morality, of a beginning of the rights of the individual, right? All of those very important rights that are enshrined in the, in the Constitution. Those are all achievements of modernity. So it is possible to value each of these in their place and to see how they form a larger system. But in order to do that, you have to break the grip of postmodernity, right? So for most integralists, that's where they are, is their, their 
within postmodern culture. They may identify as integralists, but I suspect the integralists I know, most of their friends are still, you know, fairly postmodern, right? Most of their cultural loyalties are very postmodern because integral culture as a culture, as a worldview, hasn't really emerged into its own powerful force. It's not, it's not a, really a market. There's not enough people involved. And, uh, indeed, it's, um, like all new movements, goes through cycles, right? There's, you know, there's an upside in the last decade, and now there's a sort of a downside in this decade. And I think you and I are both uh, committed to the idea that this is the next great phase of human history, that although it may take a while for it to develop, we saw postmodernism, right, beginning in the 1840s, right, or even earlier. And it took uh, over 100 years for it to become a real cultural force that had political and economic uh, vitality of its own. All right. At the end of my interview with Steve, I asked him a bit about economic nationalism and the idea that an unchecked globalism is willing and able to farm out jobs to the lowest bidders around the world, which of course has an upside for the world, but a distinct downside for the working class of the United States. And what does an integral nationalism have to say about that? Since the end of the Cold War and over the last 25 years, national interests have changed and the, the need to protect workers in the United States from the larger currents of globalization, protect them in a way that transcends and includes, protect them in a way that doesn't just regress and, and become isolationist, but also doesn't neglect the fact that what goes with patriotism, what goes with natural nationalism is a sort of national solidarity that makes us realize we do have a larger duty to American workers than we do to Chinese workers, right? I mean, ultimately we want to see all workers. We have a world-centric morality as globalists. We want to see the middle class spread throughout the world, right? And we realize that in order for that to happen, there's going to be some hits, on the middle class in the United States. These transitions are not without their, their sacrifices and their pain. But these people, these Trump voters, who so many of postmodernists view strictly as deplorables, are our countrymen. And in the same way that we have a sort of sense of moral duty to our family, even the members of our family that we don't like, even the mem members of our family that are jerks, you know, we still have some sort of noble duty to, to, to have a family morality with them. Well, at a higher level, maybe not as deep as the family uh, morality, but, but there is a nationalistic morality that if that doesn't hold, then globalism and this increasing trends of globalism are unsustainable, right? And that means that, that we can't just see those who support a political move to consolidate back and to reclaim some of that lost nationalism and to question some of these internationalist policies that were appropriate in 1947, but may not be appropriate in 2017. Um, Instead of just seeing them as racists, well, certainly some of them are, right? And, but again, that's our duty as integralists is to tease apart the, the, the racism and the xenophobia from the healthy nationalism and the family loyalty that goes with being an American. And the key to that is reconciling the history, right? To, to, to resist the narratives that paint American history as a disaster, to paint it as nothing but greed and exploitation and colonialism and racism and... Uh, uh, you know, genocide and all the other things that are, that are true charges that we need to integrate. But the best way for us to integrate those true corrections, those, those, um, rightful critiques of Americans, America's history involves holding at the same time, using this dialectical seeing or vision logic, holding at the same time 
um, the elements of America's achievements that we have to have pride in. It's not just a matter of acknowledging it intellectually as another point. It involves embodying and living these values, being proud of America and, and being willing to stand up for the good that America has done. You know, that goes against the grain. It's like nails on the chalkboard for postmodernists. So one of the ways you can tell whether, whether you're being run by a, an integral value system or a postmodern value system is whether uh, you can stomach the admission and the affirmation that America has done some amazingly good things in the world. Again, in the paper, I say that as a globalist, I find this idea that America is, is qualitatively, morally superior uh, to other nations, that that's hubristic and immature, right? That's one of the downsides that we have to carefully tease apart, right? But there's other ways in which American exceptionalism, the good side of American exceptionalism, isn't just hubristic. It involves saying, well, America is, we, we, as Americans, we hold our nation to a higher standard. We can't just pursue our national interest, you know, Bismarck style, right? We, we can't just take Iraq's oil. We can't just um, uh, treat other nations as if they're merely our competitors. We have a larger duty because we're willing to say that we think America is exceptional. Then one of the ways it's exceptional is that it is a place where world-centric morality for, for good and bad has come to blossom and become a, a increasingly a major political force. So... Integral politics is the art of seeing postmodernity clearly, of, of not rejecting it entirely, but seeing how, just like um, postmodernism's job and history is to break out of, of modernity, to be dissatisfied with modernity, to call modernity out on all of the problems that it's created and all of the threats that it continues to um, perpetrate on the world. But just as that's a very important job, which we that's what postmodern leadership looks like. It is disintegrative, right? Green does dissolve amber or blue, right? Our job as integralists is to say, okay, we've been liberated by this perspective, right? We're, we've broken out of modernity, and indeed, we're, we've gone along for this ride, and we've been benefited thereby. But now, we have to see how, in, in order for uh, this world-centric trend not to awaken or, or not to empower these regressive trends that in some ways are more powerful, that once awakened could indeed drag us permanently back, or at least back for decades, it involves, as integralists, understanding how green is the antithesis that calls for a synthesis. That, and that synthesis means not just um, appreciating that modernity makes us rich, and not just appreciating how traditionalism at its best made us moral, um, but that uh, these things are all working together and that there is a higher synthesis that, that brings all three together uh, in a transcendent and inclusive new whole. Um, but that just can't be done with a sweeping arc of history. We have to get into the details, and those details are found wherever we find these uh, natural interdependent polarities. Right. So like the, the values are developmental structures. Values are the very movement of progress toward the good. So when we understand this principle of values, when we when we use this sort of philosophical technology that integral thinking gives us, then that allows us to recognize, okay, we have a, a polarity between nationalism and globalism. We have a polarity between modernism and postmodernism. We have a polarity between traditionalism and modernism. We have a polarity within modernism. Again, it's self-similar across the spectrum. Um, and that the ability to, to detect a positive-positive value polarity where the higher value depends on the lower value um, and the ability to distinguish that from a problem to be solved where you know good and bad is not an indestructible polarity, right? It's good and good that is the polarity. So while there are certainly bads of nationalism, 
the goods are, are permanently there. And unless we affirm those in our politics, unless we affirm those in our identity, then we're inviting uh, Trumpism. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Steve McIntosh, for your excellent insights into how we can make sense of our politics and move things ahead into a better, healthier future. And thank you all for listening. You can read Steve's essay, Appreciating the Upside of Nationalism, at the Institute for Cultural Evolution's website, which is culturalevolution.org. And you can see more of my stuff at dailyevolver.com and on Integral Life. So thank you again for listening. This is Jeff Salzman. Until next time, keep it integral.